Hi friends, welcome to this new episode of my podcast, A Digital Tomorrow. Today, I have the huge pleasure of introducing Professor David Lee. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Aurea, for having me here today. It is a great honor. It's actually my honor to, to host you today. So for all those of you in the, in the audience who might not uh, know David yet, um, Professor David Lee Kuo Chuen is a professor at the Singapore University of Social Sciences, Shanghai University of Finance and Economics, and also an adjunct professor at the National University of Singapore. His other appointments are the chairman of the Global Fintech Institute, as well as Vice President of the Economic Society of Singapore, co-founder of the Blockchain Association of Singapore, and council member of the British Blockchain Association. Aside from his academic uh, like uh, perspective and work, he's also been very involved in the professional uh, market. Basically, he has like over 20 years of expertise, of experience as CEO and independent director of listed and tech companies. He's been acting as consultant and advisor to international organizations on the food supply chain, blockchain, fintech and digital currency. So as you can see, it's an absolute pleasure for, for me to host uh, Professor Lee because of his uh, well, uh, wide experience, both uh, academic and non-academic. So I would like to kick off this um, podcast by talking a bit about your personal journey. I know that we will cover uh, well, defy the metaverse and many um, relevant topics. But before that, I would like to, well, to ask you about um, about your experience. No, I mean, looking at your amazing biography, we see that you have, as I said before, an extensive uh, academic and professional experience in the areas of traditional finance first, but these last uh, few years in the areas more of uh, fintech and defy. So. Um, You've actually become one of the most uh, respected voices in the industry in, in Asia and I would say uh, the world. So I would like to ask you, how did you transition from traditional finance to fintech and why did you decide to make this, uh, this step? Well, I think I have Singapore to thank because uh, my own career is a transformation of Singapore. I, as you know, I started as an academic in the National University of Singapore in the 90s, and then I moved on to become a stockbroker and a hedge fund manager and also running listed company before I go back to, I mean, before I went back into academic, uh, I, I was a property developer as well. So the whole transformation from stockbroking to um, uh, this uh, hedge fund and then to property development and REITs are just a transformation of the Singapore financial sector. And moving on to crypto and blockchain is just a natural extension of that transformation. And of course, the reason why I went back to academic is because like um, a lot of policymakers, like a lot of uh, academics and like a lot of business people after the 2008, global financial crisis, we were just at the juncture uh, that we don't really know what to do besides having more leverage and more complex financial products to increase our margin and revenue. So I have to, I have to go back to the academic and uh, were to start doing research to see how we can search for a direction that we can expand businesses into that area. And the metaverse is just an extension of the cryptocurrency and blockchain. I see. 
I see that's uh, actually very interesting. I wanted to ask you a bit now about um, education, especially when it comes to education in fintech. As I said before, you are very involved in this area. I mean, you are uh, the chairman of the board of, uh, of the Global uh, Fintech Institute. You teach at uh, Singapore, Shanghai, as I said before. No, So I wanted to ask you, like, uh, do you think that uh, worldwide there is perhaps a lack of uh, offer when it comes to fintech courses? Because, um, for example, you know, I come from Spain originally, and in Spain, uh, very few universities are currently offering any fintech-related course. Actually, it is very common for people studying business and management to, well, to finish their uh, whole um, cycle, their whole studies, without any kind of uh, knowledge whatsoever of this area, which is kind of um, contradictory to me now. So I wanted to ask you whether you think uh, there is a um, gap in that area, a lack of uh, offer, or you think uh, it's fine as it is? Well, perhaps I can give you an example. When I was young, uh, I was working at a university and my research back in the 1990s uh, was known as machine learning now, but I was an econometrician. So that was the beginning of it. And I realized that uh, the financial sector, especially the stockbroking houses and also the Wall Street research, especially in the department, research department were way ahead of the the finance, the finance academics. And that was the kind of uh, draw for a lot of young people like us in the university to join the industry, especially the financial industry from National University of Singapore. A lot of us left, about 20 over of us left for the financial industry because the research was a lot more interesting. But having said that, in the last 10 years, you realize that when technology and other multidisciplinary uh, science has come into the picture. The finance department certainly has lost its last luster, and also the research department in Wall Street. Uh, they were they were not the leaders in research anymore. And what we have seen is that the computer science department has become uh, the leading thought uh, the thought leaders in the field. However, the computer science people are not. Uh, from finance, neither are they from social sciences, neither are they from human behavior. Uh, and people who manage funds, people who have the money are actually the one that eventually will influence where the direction is. And what is happening now uh, for the past or for the past five years is that we focus a lot on uh, programming courses. We focus a lot on, uh, you know, uh, uh, de developers especially stack developers and so on. But eventually, it will go back to people who are managing money. Eventually, it will go back to people who actually are investing to direct where all these investments are going to be. And you look at the Singapore government, uh, we have the uh, Infocom uh, Development Authority, we call it IMDA, Infocom and Media Development mm -hmm. Authority, we have actually came out a report two years ago on the uh, you know, technology roadmap. And in there, uh, there are chapters, which is a book that I have actually written, uh, edited with IMDA, that, uh, that sort of mark out the areas of investment for the sovereign wealth fund, especially for Singapore. And if you look into that, then you realize that it is a multidisciplinary research area. In there, there's talent development, there is a type of technology that we should be focusing on and so on. And in China, they do the same thing. They have a lot of technology roadmap. 
And I'm sure that you have based, based in Hong Kong, you can see Hong Kong too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Asian uh, economy tend to uh, have this technology roadmap and where the sovereign wealth fund, they pump the money in there to build the digital infrastructure and also develop the talents in those areas. So when you are talking about the costs and so on, certainly there is a lack of a holistic approach, multidisciplinary from machine learning, deep learning, which is the AI, the blockchain, the cloud computing, the data analytics, uh, quantum computing, human behavior, uh, regulation, uh, and, and so on. Social sciences element in there. It is not easy to uh, have universities having a cross departmental collaboration because each of them have their own KPI. Each of them have their favorite journals. Each of them have the way to promote academics. So I think uh, what we have done in Singapore University of Social Sciences for the past five years, where we recruited people in the finance department, none of them were PhD from finance. They are either from uh, AI, they are from blockchain, cryptography, they are from network theory, and some of them are uh, work from the work, working industry and they have legal background and so on. So uh, we, were, we were privileged and we were blessed in the sense that we are able to group together young academics and then we have courses conducted by the industrialists like yourself so that they can learn from the industrial, industrialists and when we write books and articles so that to disseminate the information and design the courses, the master, the diploma for FinTech in the industry mm-hmm. and and the difficulties was that fintech was approached from the technology angle, but fin, fintech should really be approaching from the finance angle and merge both together. And therefore, uh, you see that it's difficult to have courses which are fairly holistic. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that is true. You, you need this double approach you know, from finance and both uh, technology you know, at the same time. And I mean, kind of related to this, I wanted to tell about, uh, to tell the, the uh, listeners about a post that you recently wrote because uh, you are very active on LinkedIn. You know, I, I actually encourage all of my listeners to follow you because you are like uh, posting uh, well, constant uh, news and updates on these uh, areas of DeFi, the metaverse. So I remember that you wrote recently something like um, that you thought that everyone working in finance right now should uh, learn about fintech and DeFi. Otherwise, they risk uh, being left uh, behind in the near future. So uh, why do you think that, uh, I mean, why do you think things are like that? And also, why do you think that fintech and DeFi have uh, become so relevant these last uh, few years? To the point that, uh, well, to you and to many people, no? everyone working on finance needs to, to learn at least a bit about it in order to, well, to catch up and, and stay like, uh, completely updated. Yeah, I think this has to do with a lot of things that's happening in the physical world. Uh, first, first and foremost is the climate change. I don't think we can build more infrastructure. We cannot build more bridges, more roads, and a lot more industrial part reaching to the underdeveloped areas because that has implication, especially for uh, the developing economies. So having said that, uh, and having been in the physical economy that I used to run factories as well, the physical economy growth is limited to single digit, if there's any growth at all. All policymakers and also corporates are looking for fresh growth area. 
And that's where the virtual worlds come in. That's where the metaverse come in. And it feeds back down to DeFi and cryptocurrency and blockchain. That growth in the virtual world will be double digit or triple digit, right? And if you, if you can see that, then you see the next big thing happening will be in the metaverse. It is a convergence of technology. It is the convergence of the physical and the virtual world. It is about having, duplicating the physical world in the virtual world. It is about looking at things which exist in the virtual world and transplanting them into the physical world by HoloLens and so on. So if you see that there's a development of this twin world, the growth is definitely coming from the virtual world. And the only thing that we need to solve will be um, energy. How, when we, we're going to use a lot more electricity, we're going to build a lot more, we're going to build a lot more compute, computing power. Uh, are this going to be uh, climate friendly? And these are all important issues and every issues uh, can be considered as a pain points and every pain points are opportunities for new businesses. So we can see that renewable, renewable energy is a new area. The metaverse will trigger that. And then a lot of raw materials that we're talking about, rare earth and so on, where the mining could be damaging to, to, the, to the climate and the earth. And we have to think of new ways and all these problems are business opportunities. So metaverse is going to drive us to think deeper about how to use technology to serve more people, how to use technology to create more products and not to use the technology to make it more complex, not to use technology to make it more leverage. So mm -hmm. it's it very clear that we do not want more leverage. We do not want more complex product. We want more people to benefit because we want more people to become customer. We want more people, we want more products so that we can list it on the exchanges, whether it's decentralized or centralized so that we can serve more people. In ASEAN alone, 50% of people have no broadband access. 50% of people do not have, uh, or 40 over percent people do not have formal financial services. So, so we can look at the, you know, the cup is either half NP or half full, but we would like to look at it as half NP. So there are a lot of work to be done. There are a lot of businesses to be, to, to, to do. Yeah. I see. I see. I mean, now you mentioned the, the metaverse, which is actually a very interesting topic. So I think we could uh, dig a bit deeper in that. You know, like for example, I know that many of my listeners might be wondering, first of all, what's a metaverse? And then um, maybe like one more specific question. Um, why a piece? And I know that you asked that in one of your posts, so that's why I'm asking. No, why a piece of land is worth uh, 2.4 million US dollars? No, a piece of virtual land. How's that possible? No, I mean. What's like the rationale behind uh, these? Uh, or for example, last week I read that someone bought a plot of land close to that of uh, Snoop Dogg, because you know Snoop Dogg, the famous rapper from the US, created these Snoop Bears. So someone bought for, I think it was a few million US dollars as well, a plot of land adjacent to, to Snoop Dogg's one. So how is that possible? I mean, what's the rationale behind that? Because I know that many people are, are asking that. So it's linked to the question you had before that it is about smart contracts. It is about DeFi. And you, if you have a smart contract, actually it's a digital contract on a decentralized network. And if you are doing finance, it has to be on a decentralized network. 
which means they're either blockchain or distributed ledger. So the metaverse have got two sides of it. You have the centralized metaverse and you have the open metaverse, which is linked to Web 3.0. And the Web 3.0 that uh, bring to us is that not only that we can do peer-to-peer -peer exchange of information, because of distributed ledger, we can do a peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value. And this is important, where you can do peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value. Well, you, you could see a situation where everybody is actually forming the consensus. And if this decentralized consensus is perpetual, then your ownership is not only portable by smart contracts, by the distributed ledger, by the interoperability, but it is also permanent, perpetual. It is freehold. It is not leasehold. So a freehold properties in the metaverse can be there forever. And once you have this ownership idea in the metaverse, because people cannot imagine that in the virtual space, because the virtual space is borderless, it's limitless. There's the, you can continue to have a lot more computers, a lot more binary space, and it's unlimited. It's just like cryptocurrency is open source. If you don't like Bitcoin, you can have your own Bitcoin using the source code. But the key question is that who is going to use the Bitcoin that you created? And that is the community. And you have the right community with the kind of right property, build, building the right thing that benefit people who want to take part. So it is about building the ecosystem, the community that can build a network effect and the ecosystem will be worth a lot more. Because if you have to summarize the valuation metric for the virtual world, it is only one word, network effect. And the network effect comes from community spirit. And the community spirit comes from designing a distributed ledger or distributed ecosystem that benefits the most people. If it can benefit the most people, your network effect will be tremendous. Therefore, if you, if you have an idea of doing that, you can pay 2.4 million, 3.6 million, and uh, 69 million for painting because in your mind, that 69 million is a payback for what you have made from this ecosystem. And by throwing the 69 million on the digital art, you have actually created a lot of jobs for the digital art people who are in need of a job, who are having a difficult time because Hollywood is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. But these people are talented. You bring them into the ecosystem. When you bring talented people in the ecosystem, everything will be worth a lot more money. So therefore, your design thinking has to be, how can I design something that you can own that benefit the most people? And these people are talented in the first place. And then that will filter down to people who have not those talents and who have not those wealth and who have not those uh, endowment that you have. So it's, it's important to think about how to benefit the most people and then you will understand why that piece of property, that piece of binary space is worth so much. Um, well, thanks for, for the explanation. But following now on this idea that you mentioned about the community, I wanted to ask you about um, why do you think that this um, community is attracting much more uh, institutional investors than before. Like, for example, a few years ago, uh, most people who invested in cryptos were uh, retail investors mostly, and you didn't see like big banks tapping into this market. Or when it comes to the metaverse, one might think that it's only about, uh, well, individuals like you and I investing or tapping into this market. But we also see many countries which are planning to start 
to open its own uh, consulates or embassies in the metaverse. So it's not just about uh, a few individuals who like technology or cryptos. No, I mean, it's much more than that. So why do you think these uh, big companies, big names, institutional companies are like uh, starting to tap into uh, not just cryptos, but the cryptos, the metaverse, NFTs? Yeah, I think, I think it has to do a lot to do with uh, the investment policy. You know, in, in stocks, some, a lot of funds can only invest in licensed exchanges. A lot of funds can only invest in companies which are uh, larger than US 1 billion uh, market capitalization and so on. And of course, the, the realization that uh, the technology is getting to be more mature and the more decentralized it is, the larger the network effect, the hard, the safer it is, the more secure it is. And there's no point investing in a small distributed ledger uh, community because uh, that cryptocurrency can be centralized overnight. By investing something into a Bitcoin, it's, it's global, it's distributed. No doubt, sometimes you can see that the mining is concentrated in, in a few big, uh, big miners, but as it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot harder for it to disappear overnight. So from the investment perspective, the risk has reduced either in terms of liquidity, in terms of security, in terms of maturity, in terms of the investment policy, and, and so on. So it's natural, natural that, again, when you have this network effect, you know, it, it, with a higher liquidity, larger market capitalization, more indexation, uh, and then more funds and more, li more licensed exchanges, the funds will be more comfortable because they are not preventing, uh, prevented from invested, uh, investing in all, all this. But more importantly, it has to be sustainable. If it's not sustain, sustainable, then it is a scam. So it is important that all this is sustainable and with metaverse and people beginning to see, because metaverse is a convergence of physical and virtual world. It's a lot easier to understand where you have a factory in the virtual world as compared to a factory in uh, the physical world and that converge is easier for a lot of people to see the value for the retail as well. And then when you have funds, you start selling this idea, it's a lot easier to sell the ideas and, and it's a lot easier for regulators to justify. And then you create another layer of FOMO that you are not in this game as a regulators, you're not this in this game as a fund manager, you're going to miss out on the next big thing. So all these are going to be part of the equation that people who are into crypto in 2013, they see that, they have faith that this will take off. And I think they're proven right. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I think they're very right. I would like to talk now about uh, Singapore because uh, you before uh, mentioned how important Singapore has been in your, uh, well, throughout your uh, personal journey. So Singapore is, as well, most people know, undoubtedly a very important uh, node for blockchain and cryptos to the point that it's probably the most uh, crypto-friendly uh, jurisdiction in, in the whole of Asia. So uh, why? Why is that? I mean, I know that uh, it is because the regulators decided to make things like that, but, but why do you think uh, they decided to, well, to take these, uh, these steps? And, and what do you think that Singapore has done uh, well compared to, to other countries? I think for the world, they are beginning to understand that you know, blockchain and distributed ledger, uh, they, they are uh, a technology lev levering the playing field. 
So if you are a small country with five over million population, you are a small country which uh, you can't have a reach globally, physically, the next best thing is to reach out virtually. And Singapore from the very beginning, you understand that being a node in the virtual space has a lot of advantage for a small countries. And this idea is beginning to filter down to the other 180 countries in the world. Because every country is small. Hong Kong is small, Thailand is small, Singapore is small, Cambodia is small, and there are many, many small countries in the world. And when the small countries realize that, you know, when there is always a lot of advantages of being big, because when you're big, you have economies of scale. But here, suddenly you have a technology that if you can work together, you know, individually taking care of your own interests, but you have a common, uh, you know, mission of building a network, then you actually are building a digital infrastructure that everybody can take advantage at the expense of a monopolistic structure, whether it's in payment system, whether it is in a market and so on. So the smaller countries are beginning to find them, they are being empowered. And it's, import it's important to understand they will not be stopping here because every country will be building their own digital infrastructure. They, they will be looking at interoperability among their own digital infrastructure as a public good. And that momentum will continue to build and suddenly they find alternatives that can fulfill their interests. So it is a different form of trade agreement because everybody is a node in a trade agreement, but this is digital trade agreement that I can have my open source. If you like it, my design take care of interest, come join us into this network. But you think that this digital agreement is not to your interest, you are most welcome to change the code a little bit and then we can all join the other and then we can interoperable. So in that case, all the trade agreement can be renegotiated in a faster manner, more efficient manner through computer codes. And you can see that taking on and that's why Singapore is a champion for digital agreement with many countries. And you will see that this will take shape and more and more people will be talking about interoperability more and more people are talking digital trade agreement rather than just the usual trade agreement that you can go to, go to the table and, and negotiate for years, nothing will take off. Now you and I can form a digital agreement and do interoperability and that will continue to grow uh, faster and faster and broader and broader and the network effect will be big. So now we can really fulfill the idea of uh, open trade on the virtual space. I see that's actually a very interesting idea. So right now we are where we are. I mean, as we said before, cryptos are becoming to, to be much more mainstream than before. It's not just about uh, retail investors. It's, it's about like, uh, well, pretty much everyone, like uh, big banks, investment banks, tapping into this market. The metaverse has also uh, become uh, a big thing. I mean, everyone's talking about that. Many companies tech or non-tech are tapping into this market, NFTs as well. So being where we are, I wanted to ask you um, to wrap up this uh, this discussion. Uh, what opportunities and challenges do you see for the uh, blockchain market in general or, or even the metaverse this uh, coming year 2022? Like, is there any area that, uh, well, that causes you like uh, well, concern or, or, or the opposite or any area that uh, well, makes you say that, that there is like a huge opportunity in there? 
I think the reason why the cryptocurrency and the blockchain has taken off, have taken off uh, the main reason is that the community are very uh, focused on their mission of making this technology available to all. The speculation element is always there, uh, you know, but the, the big community are focusing on serving the underserved, the big community uh, very focused on serving the needy, the big community are very focused on educating the public of how this technology can do good. Of course, any technology can do harm. Technology, technologies are neutral. It's a human behavior that we need to regulate. And metaverse can go very wrong. Metaverse can be very centralized and metaverse can uh, go very wrong in the sense that the first mover can form a lot of mon monopolistic structure and big countries will have a lot of uh, advantages in making this metaverse very centralized and control every aspect of human life. And there will be no privacy protection. Uh, if, there's, if the government is not benevolent, if the government is not efficient, the government do not have a very uh, good enforcement uh, you know, civil service, then metaverse can go really wrong, especially decentralized. So it is important to ensure that the centralized metaverse do not in, intrude into the freedom of individual choice. I think it is very important that we bear that in mind so that data, which is the essential elements or essential factor of production are not concentrated in the hands of a few people, but to ensure that it's made available to as many uh, corporates and as many individuals as, as well. The crypto community has focused on empowering the needies and the individuals and the peer-to-peer, -peer, but this precondition may not necessarily exist in the metaverse. So it is important to focus on Web 3.0 development. It's very important to focus on peer-to-peer -peer exchange of information and peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value. If we don't focus on that, I think we are heading, the humankind is heading for self-destruction. And if we are not careful, humankind will be in self-destruction that we know reproduction. Okay, we can always invent spouses that we all can live with and on a very happily, we can invent or create children, but only exist in the virtual world, or we can invent uh, human machine uh, creature that we have and the human reproduction may not exist. If a few people, a small population, uh, prefers that, that's fine. But if the entire human population are doing that, then uh, we are heading for self-destruction. So there are a lot of issues that we need to think about. And this is the time to think about it. For, for crypto, we have the time. But metaverse, we don't have much time. I see. I see. That's a very interesting um, thought. No? I mean, what you said now about uh, the risks of uh, the centralized uh, Metaverse, and I agree with you. I mean, technologies are not uh, 
good or harmful per se. You know, I mean, what you need to control and regulate is human behavior. So I think that's actually a very fair point. And I also uh, well, wanted to remark that uh, you spoke about uh, cryptos being as a, as a tool to serve the like the, the poor or the needy ones. And I think that makes a lot of sense as well, because cryptocurrencies have actually a huge potential when it comes to promoting financial inclusion. No? So it's, it's pretty much what you said. It's all about regulating human behavior no? and making sure that no one uses those technologies to, to do any kind of harm. Yeah, I, I think I want to add that to me, a lot, of, a lot of useful central bank digital currency, they are cryptocurrency as well in my mind, because they make use of a lot of ideas that come from Bitcoin. A lot of ideas that come from Ether. You look at the white paper of ECNY, they talk about smart contracts. And smart contracts only exist of distributed ledger or blockchain. So you can see that they too are uh, at the back end, they are cryptocurrencies. So to me, cryptocurrency has done a lot of good in disseminating this good technology to regulators to understand that. We can actually serve the underserved. The, I think uh, the mission is the same. It's just that uh, it takes time for this to go through, whether it's stable coins or, and so on that we have, because stable coins need to exist on the distributed ledger as well. It can as, exist on a centralized ledger, but it is not so portable. We'll find that out very soon when you try to do interoperability, then you're back to the same problem that we have in trying to do physical trade agreement. So I would say that uh, eventually, 50 years, 100 years down the road, everything will be cryptocurrency. CBDC too will be classified as cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there is no doubt that technically speaking, uh, CBDCs are like adopting like a lot, no, from the elements of cryptocurrencies. I mean, from a technical perspective, there is no doubt of that. Yes, I, I agree with you. And well, I mean, it's good to hear that uh, everything will be so so crypto. I mean. It's, it shows us that we are like, uh, like kind of going to the, to the right uh, path you know, when it comes to, to trying to promote uh, fintech and DeFi in general, or at least if, if not promoting, at least trying to, to explain it you know, to people to make it like easier, especially this is also something that I'm trying to do um, with this podcast, you know, to try to make these uh, things uh, available to everyone, because I know that one of the issues or, or caveats when it comes to accessing uh, so many information as, as we can do right now you know, through the internet is precisely that you never know what kind of information is actually like the well the, the, the right one or the, the most accurate one so that's why talking to, well, to people like you to actual experts is something that, uh, that is actually very valuable you know, because it's going to allow many people to, to get to know more uh, about this world coming from a very reliable source so I wanted to thank you uh, David, for, uh, for coming to my, to my show, to my podcast. It's been an actual pleasure to talk uh, with you for this uh, half an hour. Thank you very much, Oreo. You are one of the driving force in the community. I'm so glad to be able to be on your podcast. Uh, thank you very much for all your effort in the community as well. No, it is my pleasure. And well, thank you again, David. And please, to all my listeners, feel free to follow Professor David Lee on LinkedIn and feel free to follow me as well uh, to check my uh, latest updates. Thank you again and see you soon. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Bye.